And we're in the book of Exodus again today. If you have a Bible, turn there. Book of Exodus. And we'll start in chapter 25. Because I want to point out that chapter 25, verse 8, really summarizes the rest of the book of Exodus from that point on. It says this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That single sentence summarizes Exodus 25 to 40. Because these chapters are about the tabernacle. That tent in which God would uniquely and specially dwell in the midst of his nomadic people, the Israelites. There are really two halves to those chapters which share that same theme. Chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus give us the instructions needed for the tabernacle construction and the priesthood and the sacrifices and all that. Well, chapters 35 and 40 to 40 record for us the actual construction of the tabernacle and then God finally entering into his tent in glory. And then in the middle there, you might have noticed, I said 25 to 31, and then 35 to 40. In the middle, chapters 32 to 34, there we have kind of a parenthesis. We have Israel's great rebellion, their idolatry. We have that, that seeming uncertainty for a time. Will God remain with these people or give up on them and start anew? Remember, it's in these chapters that Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and And God concedes. God forgives. God renews the covenant. That's chapter 34. So those chapters in the middle really function like a hinge, and the two sides almost have mirror images, the same themes, often the same exact language. So on the one side, you have the instructions for the tabernacle. The other side, you have the construction of the tabernacle. On one side, you have instructions for the priest's garments. On the other side, you have the assembly of the priest's garments. On one side, there are instructions for the collection of materials needed for the tabernacle. And on the other side, you have the actual collection of those materials that are offered by the people for the tabernacle. It's that last one that we haven't yet covered. That last theme along those lines is the contribution needed. We've covered, going back I think to July of this year, we've covered the tabernacle, the priesthood, the, the sacrifices, the incense and oil, even the craftsmen needed for the tabernacle. But we've not yet talked about the contributions needed. We know that this is about the tabernacle. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. But how's it going to happen? Craftsmen, yes. But what will the craftsmen put their hands to? Where will the materials come from? Now, God could have sent down from heaven a prefab tabernacle. A prefab tab, let's call it. Just float it on down, and there it is. He could have bypassed the craftsmen, could have bypassed the contributions, but he didn't. Instead, he said this, chapter 25, verse 1. Look at that. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution 
From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram's skins. Goat's skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now it'll be chapter 35 that we'll eventually get to when we see on the other side of the hinge the collection actually being taking place. But, but first I want to take us to, just for a shorter time, to another offering that we find along the way and we haven't yet talked about. It's in chapter 30. Turn to chapter 30. Here we have six verses about another offering, and it's a different kind of offering. It's what we call the census offering or a census tax. Verse 11 of chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel, shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your sins. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So here we have the census offering or really the census tax because it is definitely required. This was to happen whenever they took a census, whenever they counted up the people. Now, it's true that sometimes a census leads to trouble. In 2 Samuel 24, David took a census of his army, and he immediately knew it was sin. Apparently, he was counting up his army in either some sort of boastful way or trusting in the numbers, perhaps. But this census mentioned in Exodus 30 is not necessarily sinful. It says when you take the census. In fact, It'll just be a short time before we're in the book of Numbers if we're reading along in the history of Israel. And there, God's people are commanded to take a census. But at this census, whenever it is, you take up an offering, it says. Three quick observations about this census, about this offering. Number one, it was relatively small. Half a shekel of silver. According to the experts, that isn't that much. It's probably under $10 worth of value in today's money. Relatively small. Secondly, it was the same for all. Verse 15, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. As for the significance of that, just hold on, we'll get to that. Here's the third part. It's practical and instructional. 
Verse 16 says that it's for the service of the tent of meeting. That's the practical part of things. The offering contributed to the ongoing maintenance of and operation of the tabernacle. But then the second half of verse 16, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. There's the instructional part. Now, some of the wording here in this paragraph, if taken too literally or too rigidly, it can lead you down a wrong path. So notice verse 12, this offering is called a ransom for his life. In verse 15, it says that this is an offering to make atonement for your lives. Verse 16 calls it atonement money. And that might sound like this is some sort of payment for sin. But it's not. Because in Exodus, God is already setting up a system for atonement by way of sacrifice. Of course, that system didn't literally take away their sin. It pointed to the eventual solution that we find in the sacrifice of Christ. But that's the system for the time. Not atonement money as if you could buy your forgiveness. Now this is a small, symbolic Gift back to God as a memorial, an instructional reminder, a reminder of a ransom that's already happened by way of their rescue out of slavery in Egypt. It brings the people to remembrance. The interpretive keys, I think, are that word, remembrance, verse 16, and then verse 15, the statement that the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. That means that redemption is the same for everyone, rich or poor. Redemption has this great leveling effect. The small, same-for-all tax reminds the people of their redemption and that everyone was in need of it and everyone got all of it. And so it doesn't cost the poor so much that they can't contribute to this memorial. And the rich are not allowed to pay more just because they can, as the rich are sometimes accustomed to doing. What do rich people do when they have to pay an $8 bill? Here's a 10. Keep the change. Or if they're even more rich, hey, here's a 20. Keep the change. Right? And that overpaying or big tipping could flow out of a generous heart, but it may flow out of a prideful heart in a sense of being better than But that attitude won't work with redemption. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less. Ligon Duncan gets the prize for being the most quotable on this. He says, everyone alike in Israel is a sinner. Everyone alike in Israel, rich or poor, prominent or obscure, priest or no, is a sinner in need of redemption. No one has a privileged status before God, before his tabernacle. Everyone needs atonement. Everyone needs ransom. Everyone needs redemption. All are like sinners in need of mercy 
And though this money practically contributed to the upkeep of the service of the temple, symbolically it reminded the people again of their need for atonement. So that's the census offering. We want to devote the rest of our time to what we call the free will offerings. Free will offerings. By the way, free will here isn't about that theological debate about whether our wills are free or not. Free will here means that these are offerings or gifts or contributions freely given by the people. Chapter 35, verse 29 calls them a free will offering to the Lord. Now, we've already seen the instructions that God gave Moses back in chapter 25. Now, our focus will be on the actual collection that takes place in chapters 35 and 36. So, look now, chapter 35, starting in verse 4, and we'll skip along some verses here or there uh, for time's sake. Verse 4 Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. Now skip to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns of fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. Skip to verse 27. The leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, all the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And now chapter 36 in verse 3. We'll see a few verses there. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution 
for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Well, that's a beautiful portion of God's word, isn't it? Take note of what it means for the storyline of Exodus. Remember, Moses came down the mountain twice with the tablets of stone under his arms. The first time he came down and the people were engaged in gross idolatry because they had said to Aaron, make for us a God. And Aaron said, give me your gold. Well, now Moses comes down a second time, this time with new commandments under his arms, new tablets And this time with his face aglow because he had been meeting with God. And this time he finds people willing to listen. Willing to listen. Aaron collected gold to make an idol in chapter 32. Now in chapter 35, the people give their gold and their fabrics and skins and their oils and perfumes, and they give it to the true God for his dwelling place among them. And they give it willingly, sacrificially, abundantly, freely, worshipfully, wonderfully. I want to point out five principles that we can mine from these passages. Passages on giving, really. Passages on generosity, But we have to state up front that there's an important difference. Some similarities, but some differences between these people and us today. Between their gifts to God's kingdom and our gifts to God's kingdom today. Of course, these people were giving to that very important and very specific project of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a temporary institution. In the days of Solomon, the tabernacle would no longer be needed as it gave way to that more permanent structure for God's presence, the temple. And in the days of Jesus, the temple would no longer be needed as it gave way to the true tabernacle and the true temple of God's presence, namely Jesus, Jesus himself, and by extension, his Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian. And so today, church buildings are not tabernacles. They are not temples. Christians now are God's temple. So there are important differences between their day and our own, between their covenant and our own, between the temple then, and, or the tabernacle then, and what is God's dwelling place now. But... The New Testament has its own kind of giving, its own kind of generosity initiatives. We find in the New Testament collections taken up for the poor. We find Paul writing about his expectation that ministers and missionaries and even apostles in his day would ordinarily be financially supported by local churches. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, if you want to hunt it down. And in most churches throughout church history, especially in societies that were more affluent, 
and when there was legal freedom to do so, most churches throughout church history, where there's, where there's been money and where there's been freedom, they've built buildings to meet in. And those buildings are not the church. Of course, the people is the church. But those people meet together, and they got to find some place to do it. So Desert Springs Church decided back as a church maybe almost 20 years ago that it'd be worth pooling our financial resources together uh, to build this building on this plot of land rather than continue to rent a gymnasium in a public school for a few hours a week. Well, that's part of kingdom giving. All of this is kingdom giving. We've got kingdom giving on both sides of our Bibles, Old and New Testament. So with that in mind, we can draw out from their example in Exodus 35 and 36 some wonderful principles that though they're in a different context, doing a different project, the principles equally apply to our own kind of kingdom giving today. Five principles, three will go slow, two will go fast. Their giving was first to the Lord. It was to the Lord. Back in chapter 25, God said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me, for me, a contribution. Yes, I mean, very practically, this thing just has to get built. The tabernacle has to be built somehow. They need to raise the money. They need to provide the goods. But the contributions for the building of the tabernacle were to be worshipful. They were to be expressions of praise. It was to the Lord. Chapter 35, verse 5. A contribution to the Lord. It is the Lord's contribution. It's not him giving it. You give it. You give it to him. Their giving was to be done as an expression of praise to God. That's why it's called an offering. It's like an offering of incense. It's to please God. It's for him. It's to him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can speak of the Philippians' financial support of his mission as a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Something as practical as Paul needs money to keep moving westward towards Rome. They funded it. And Paul said, that is worship. It pleases the Lord. Now giving that is consciously to the Lord, that is praise it's harder to do in a church like ours and in days like today. So we, we don't pass a plate here. We have offering boxes in the back. And I love that we have offering boxes in the back as opposed to passing a plate. Maybe someday I'll give you my reasons for that and show you one passage in the Bible where we can find offering boxes. How about that? But it does mean this, that we have to be be a little more thoughtful and consciously aware when we're dropping something in an offering box as we walk by it. There's not this moment in the service like where I grew up, there was an offertory. 
And there was this time to give and think about your giving and perhaps pray. Many of us don't even use offering boxes. We give online. And there are some net positives to that. There's the convenience of it, and it probably helps out with consistency. But like everything else that we might pay online, especially those things where we use an auto withdraw from our bank, it can be out of sight, out of mind. When's the last time you thought about your life insurance bill that, that gets paid with an automatic withdrawal? So how do we, as people today in this culture, how do we, with new technology, which is convenient and helps with consistency, how do we not lose that necessarily conscious orientation of praise in our giving? And I don't really know. I, I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's worth you and your family trying to figure out for yourself how you can give with an automatic withdrawal as a conscious expression of praise to God. It's worth your time to figure out how to do that. And by the way, this being the last Sunday of this fiscal year, our new fiscal year begins in October, it's worth pointing out, if you would, grab your bulletin, look inside it. How'd we do? Well, praise God, we came out ahead. We are 1,500 over for the year, that is, over our planned budget. Now, notice, we, we sort of... Um, hopped along towards the finish line in the last month, 31,000 in the red in the, the month of September. I'm not sure what happened there, but let's, let's hope that October looks better than that. But, but let's praise God. Let's thank each other. Um, let's celebrate God's amazing provision in 1.8 million provided for the ministry that happens through this local church, and that doesn't include... Um, uh, missionaries in North Africa that we support. So thank you for your giving, and we commend you to continue in it. It's to the Lord. Now back to our sermon. <laughs> uh, it's out of his provision, secondly. Out of his provision that they gave. They gave to the Lord, but amazingly, they gave because the Lord gave to them. And that's true for all of us. It's true of any time, of any people. Paul can say to the Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? Rhetorical question. Everything you have, you've received it as a gift from God. It's true of all of us. But it was all so very clear and obvious in the case of these Israelites. Where did these former slaves in Egypt get all this stuff to give to God? Where did these nomadic desert travelers pick up such wealthy possessions? Well, it was back in Egypt. It was just as God promised. Listen to this, Exodus 3. Back then God said, I will give this people, his people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then in chapter 11, just before the final plague, God says, Speak now in the hearing of all the people that they ask 
every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And then in chapter 12, the people of Israel had done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is amazing. This is like a Obi-Wan Kenobi Jedi move. You know, he, Obi-Wan said, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And the people of Israel said to their Egyptian neighbors, hey, before we leave, how about you give me all your stuff? And that usually doesn't work. But it did. And they said, yeah, take it all. Take our stuff, yes. They went in, they were there as slaves. They came out. Rich. And God then provided that for which he asked his people to give and contribute back to him. It's like a, it's like a father whose birthday is coming up and his five-year-old daughter wants to get him a present, but she has no money. And so he gives her money so that she can buy her father a birthday present now, he could have bought that same thing himself. He could have, he could have bought that any time he wanted, but, but he gives to her that she might give to him, that they might celebrate together and have this lovely moment. It's beautiful. Our Father does that for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that their abundance at the present time would supply the need of the Jerusalem saints who were experiencing a famine. Their abundance would supply the need of the Jerusalem saints. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks of the Corinthians being enriched in every way so that they can be generous in every way. What about for us? Now, whatever you have, it probably came to you in a less miraculous way than how the Israelites got all that Egyptian loot. You might say, I've worked hard for it. That's how I have what I have. And there's something to that. We work, we get. There's this reciprocation. On a human level, there is sowing and then there's reaping. But from another angle, before God, no one is a self-made man. Or woman. We're all utterly dependent on him. He is sovereign over whatever we are, whatever we've been able to do. Education, experience, not least the natural gifting that we're born with. It's true for all of us. Whatever you have, you've received it. It's a gift. And we too have been given in order to give. It's all his. That's where this concept of stewardship comes in and is so helpful. You see, it's not that God gives us what we have and then we're supposed to give a portion of it back to him. It's instead that it's all his and he's put us in management over it. He wants us to manage it well, which means having a home. That's a good thing. It means feeding and clothing your kids. That's a good thing. And it also means getting behind ministry 
in supporting a local church and things like that. Now, thirdly, the principle is that it's from the heart. It's from the heart, or this is where that word free will comes in, free will giving. While it does say in verse 4 of chapter 35 that the Lord commanded these contributions, the clear emphasis, I'm sure you heard it as we read it, the clear emphasis is not put on command, but want and desire. The, the emphasis is certainly not put on the amount. Back in chapter 25, it's from every man whose heart moved him that the contribution comes. And in chapter 35, let's just see him stacked up. Verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the contribution. Verse 21, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 29, all the men and women, all the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work, they brought a free will offering to the Lord. Now there were in the Old Testament these things called tithes. They get instituted a little later on, and there were multiple tithes. There were two yearly tithes, and then a third tithe that was required every third year. So if you do the math, it ends up being um, Israelites basically pay 23 and a third percent in tithes. And I say pay because in a theocracy with a king and a sacrifice system and a temple to maintain, the lines are blurry about what is what's religious and what's civil, right? Well, lay aside those tithes of the Old Testament while we're in Exodus because they haven't come yet and because these contributions for the tabernacle are not of the same kind. The tithes were required and specified in amount. The contributions to the tabernacle were free and self-determined. Check out chapter 35, verse 20. After Moses gives them the directions, they departed from Moses. You can picture them. They went back to their tents. What's not said, but certainly happened. They went back to their tents. They took inventory of what they had. They decided together as families what to give, what they were moved to give. This is exactly what we see in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9. There Paul speaks of a willing gift, not an exaction. He says a couple verses later, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The tithe system of the Old Testament does not carry over to the New Testament. Instead, it's this kind of offering that we find in Exodus that is also picked up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But the freeness of our giving for them in Exodus days and for us today, it shouldn't lead to stinginess. It should lead to generosity and, and sacrifice. I mean, these Israelites really gave some awesome stuff. You take just the blue and purple yarn. Blue and purple yarn. You don't find blue and purple yarn on trees, do you? Where do you get blue and purple yarn? 
Well, the veil of the tabernacle was to be made of this blue and purple material. But where do you get it? You, you don't just run over to Joanne Fabrics while you're coming down from Mount Sinai and, and pick up a, a, some fabric. You know, where do you get dye in these days? You don't just run to Michael's or, or Hobby Lobby to pick up some cheap fabric dye. And because dyes today are synthetic and super cheap, we forget that they once weren't. So get this, in ancient Near East, in Exodus days, blue and purple dyes were extracted from a certain species of shellfish, which had to be caught alive and then pried open, and then inside would be this transparent liquid, and when the sun would hit it, it would turn this blue-purple color, and that would be used for dye. And it would take thousands of shellfish to collect enough dye to dye one robe. <laughs> That's a pain in the butt. <laughs> that means that that stuff's really, really expensive. It's worth a lot. And that's just one ingredient, one component among these other materials that are needed for the construction of the tabernacle. There's also gold and silver and bronze and jewels and spices and oils and incense and even some more practical, less costly items, wood, goat's hair, ram's skins. The people gave what they had and didn't all have the same stuff. They didn't all give the same stuff. They didn't all give the same amount, but they gave, and they gave well, and they were moved to give. Their hearts were stirred. Now, it's not explained in our passage why they were stirred, why they were moved, but in the broader context, I think we have two reasons for their hearts being stirred to give. One is forward-looking. The other one looks back. The forward-looking one is that they were moved to give to the tabernacle because of all that that represented. It represented God's worship. It represented God's mediated presence in the midst of his people. They were excited about God dwelling in their midst. They gave for that project. But I think the, their hearts were stirred to give in, in response to what came before. What just came before? Their sin in God's mercy. Them breaking covenant, God restoring covenant. These are people who have received grace and restoration, not because they've earned it. And so they gave to God not to earn his grace or to stay in his favor, but in response to his undeserved favor. They gave to God for his worship and because of his grace. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. In that lengthy treatment of giving and generosity over those two chapters, we have this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There it is. The incarnation, the cross, everything. Substitution. His riches come to us by way of him taking on our poverty. This is 
right here in the middle of all kinds of talk about a, a collection for the Jerusalem saints. And Paul unpacking a theology of giving and generosity. It goes back to grace. Paul is saying, we get this from Jesus. He's the one who taught us to give. So why do we today give to God? Why do we give to his work? Why do we give to his kingdom work? Well, it's just like the Israelites, but now with more information and extra reasons. But we give as an expression of praise to God like they did. We give because he's first given to us that we might give. We give because we've been moved to give because we've experienced grace, restoration, forgiveness. We don't give because we owe God. We don't repay God. We can't earn his love. We can't stay in his love by giving but as a recipient of his free grace given to us at the great cost of Christ's death upon a cross. And as people who now experience his very intimate, indwelling presence, how could we not give? How could we not be moved? How could we not be stirred to give? And now fourthly, and again we'll move more quickly through these last two, because they're sort of assumed in what we've talked about already thus far. The fourth principle is generous and abundant. Obviously, they were generous people. Their giving flowed out of a generous heart, verse 5. We've already seen in the, the materials needed, in the materials given, that they've proven their generosity. You can imagine even there was some level of risk in what they gave. The future's unknown. You don't know what you're going to need when you get to Canaan. Yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but gold is nice too. There was risk in what they gave. It doesn't say that they were, they were moved and stirred to give. So they gave a little bit. It doesn't say that they went back to their tents and looked around and said, what do we not need? I mean, what's just superfluous? We're never going to use it. That, that's what we'll give. No, they didn't. The New Testament doesn't prescribe an exact percentage for our kingdom giving, but it does say that it should be sacrificial. Maybe even the language in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is, it'll be a little painful there should be probably a little bit of a pinch. Not, I didn't even notice that that money was gone, but a little bit of a pinch. Again, moved by God's grace because of God's glorious presence, because of the, the glorious wonder of his worship spreading in this world, we're moved to put a pinch upon ourselves and some of our comforts for God and for his glory. The giving that flows out of the gospel of Christ crucified for me, how could that be anything but sacrificial? It, it's astounding how wealthy the U.S. is. We spend $9 billion a year on Halloween candy. $17 billion a year on Valentine's. 
I'm not against Halloween. I'm not against Valentine's. Neither am I against Christmas, in which we spend $720 billion a year on average. We in the U.S., on average, were 37% wealthier than the second richest nation in the world, which is Switzerland. And yet we know poverty's here. Poverty's real. That's not pretend. Not all of us are stupidly wealthy. Not everyone's contributing to the $9 billion a year in Halloween candy. And so praise God for that beauty and wonder of Jesus seeing the poor widow in Luke 21 who gave two mites. I don't even know what that represents, those two mites, but apparently it was little, and Jesus commended her for it. He commended her heart and her sacrifice. So let's take stock of where we are, of what we have and what we could do without. Let's, from time to time, go back in the tent and do some inventory and, and see what we might want to bring out to the Lord because it's his already. And whatever we determine to give, let us trust God with that. Let's commit it to him and be at peace about it. That means that some will give less than they would like to give. And God knows it's okay. And some of us should give more than we do. Now, the generous giving of these people leads to Abundance. You see that in verse 3 through 7 of chapter 36. We've read it already. They just kept giving every morning until the workers had to say, Enough! We have more than enough. Moses tell them to stop. And Moses had to tell them to stop. They had to be restrained from bringing. What a great problem to have. And now fifthly, Their giving was individual and corporate. Notice the repetition of all and everyone in verses 20 to 24 of chapter 35. Both men and women, everyone, 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 all the congregation of the people of Israel were involved in this. This is both individual and corporate. It was individual and that each person and or family needed to decide on their own what they had and what they would give. And each individual or family had to bring back to Moses whatever they determined and whatever they wanted to give. But on the other hand, there's this beautiful corporateness to it all. I did it together. No one person could have done it. God didn't raise up a super rich guy to take care of the bill or to provide all the materials. They were all in, all of them. The same is true for us as a church. This whole thing of giving is in some ways very personal, very private even in some ways. It can lead to some other problems when we start talking too much about what we're giving. But we probably don't talk about it enough 
We probably don't encourage each other in it enough. We don't celebrate giving like these people did or like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We, we have to determine on our own what we're going to give, but we need to celebrate it corporately. We're doing this together. When we look down every Sunday in our bulletins and we see that amount, that's us. We did this. This is us. This is ours. These are our plans. These are our people. These are our projects that we're giving together. All in light of his glorious mercy and grace shown to us when Christ, who was infinitely rich, became poor for us that we might have his riches. If you're not a Christian, that's what we call the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus took on our sin upon that cross that we might go free, go free following him. We pray you know that mercy today. If you're not a Christian, you might be here this morning and you're thinking, Christians talking about money. I knew it. We want to acknowledge before you that there are some people out there who call themselves Christians and they're all about money and we don't think they're really Christians. We don't think they have the spirit of God within them. We think they're false teachers and they're trouble. But the kind of God we serve is one, well, he's a universal God. He's an everything God. He's a holistic God. We shouldn't be surprised that that God tells us what to do with possessions, what to do with currency. We shouldn't be surprised that our God has a mission to spread his message to this world for their salvation. And it just costs some money to do it. You know, we had to turn the lights on in this room. Praise God, we paid the power bill in the last month. Apparently, I don't know who did it, but it, it, they're, they're on. So there's just some necessity about this. And, and no surprise that God's word not only talks about it and teaches it, but celebrates it with such great glory, wonder, and happiness. This is the kind of God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for any in this room who don't yet know Jesus and perhaps are here quite skeptically. Lord, we pray for clarity for them and pray for your working in them. We pray for your working in us all. We pray, Lord, for your power, your glory, your goodness, your worship, your presence to so consume us that we are a transformed people inside and out, even into our purses and pocketbooks and wallets and budgets. Help us for your namesake. We thank you for your mercy and kindness in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.